Episode 3, Monkey See, Monkey Do. Welcome to this episode of Capital Insurrection Report. I'm your host, Scott Kuhn. This week's episode deals with the extremist gang that appears to have been one of the prime movers at the Capital Insurrection, the Proud Boys. I won't go into any real depth into the ideology of the Proud Boys itself, because that's been addressed well elsewhere, but also because their ideology is a bit amorphous and inchoate. They build themselves as Western chauvinists, but also seem to happily accept members who aren't wasps. Uh, they are exclusively male, but appear to have, at least in the Kansas City chapter, reclu- recruited at least one woman for a leadership role in the Capitol insurrection. They have all the trappings of a street gang, using street gang terms such as colors to describe their gang uniforms. And they have gang practices, such as beatings during initiations, but they're also an intensely political organization devoted to their far-right political causes rather than the usual kinds of gang activity you would see, such as making a profit from the rackets like extortion, drugs, or smuggling. The key to understanding the Proud Boys is that it was created self-consciously as a kind of postmodern SA, the Nazi Sturmabteilung, a street-fighting political force of the sort recognizable in the Weimar era, but one that's deeply rooted in the internet age. It was founded in 2016 by Gavin McInnes, a Canadian national who's married to an American national, a United States national, rather. Uh, It's noteworthy that McInnes made a bit of money on the internet, having founded Vice Media with two other Canadians in 1994, before leaving Vice in 2008. This is a bit of a pattern for him. McInnes winds up leaving the Proud Boys in 2018, apparently concerned that the increasingly violent activities of his gang might eventually wind up creating legal consequences for him. The exact number of Proud Boys at the Capitol insurrection is unknown, as is the actual size of the organization nationally. The Southern Poverty Law Center estimates that the group may have as many as 6,000 members nationally, but their social media accounts have about 20,000 followers. In the last episode, we saw that Shane Leedon Jenkins uh, did mention them, in, at least in one of his tweets. So there may be people who are following the Proud Boys uh, who aren't you know, necessarily members, nonetheless may subscribe to some of uh, their ideology, uh, or at least their, their tactical focus, uh, strategic focus on street fighting and political violence. So they're intentionally organized to be an inclusive reactionary organization. One of the problems with traditional white supremacist organizations is that they're limited to an all-white membership. Whereas if you want to be an effective fighting force in this country, eventually you do have to integrate. So while there's still supposedly an all-male organization, they include non-WASP, non-white members, even all the way up to the office of the chairman. They allegedly focus on identification with, quote, Western values. And their uh, induction oath is, quote, I am a proud Western chauvinist. I refuse to apologize for creating the modern world. Their ideology is a bizarre mishmash. Uh, They have different platform positions where they favor drug legalization, mandatory gun ownership, gay rights, eliminating immigration, eliminating the government, 
and mandating that women become housewives, defining feminism as a cancer. The Proud Boys use online recruitment on social media and are very much associated with alt-right meme culture and irony. The difference is, though, if I bully you online, there's very little recourse, particularly if it's on an anonymous forum. But if I actually physically assault you, there's a difference. You can't just say, you're only kidding. If you've been following the news at all for the last four years, I probably don't have to spend a lot of time explaining what the alt-right is. In the wake of the Capitol insurrection, article after article covering the Proud Boys seemed to begin something like this. Uh, this is not an actual quote. The Proud Boys first attracted mainstream media attention following a mention by President Trump in the first presidential debate with Joe Biden on Tuesday, September 29th, 2020. I'm not sure that's quite right. Um, I don't, that certainly wasn't the first time I had heard of the Proud Boys, first heard of them uh, shortly after they were founded. I can't imagine being an adult from 2016 to 2020 and not having heard of the Proud Boys. Uh, you have had to have been entirely ignorant of what was going on in Portland and Charlottesville and many other places, um, you know, where the Proud Boys have been gathering an awful lot of media attention uh, over that period. So I'm going to take a lot of this as read. Uh, assume you know what the alt-right is. Assume you know generally at least what the Proud Boys are. And um, I'm assuming you've had a pulse and followed politics during the last four years. So we'll shift to what the Justice Department has to say about the Proud Boys. In all the indictments, the DOJ uses the same language to describe defendants associated with Proud Boys. It's a cut-and-paste job. Uh, there's, this isn't just laziness on the part of the Justice Department. If you're describing allegations against defendants who are all part of the same organization, acting in concert at the same time in the same place, it makes sense to use the exact same language when describing that organization. So this is taken directly uh, from the charging documents against one of the uh, co-conspirators. And again, alleged co-conspirators. Um, same language is appearing in all these different charging documents for the people who are alleged to have been associated with Proud Boys at the Capitol insurrection. Quote, Proud Boys is a nationalist organization with multiple U.S. chapters and potential activity in other Western countries. The group describes itself as a pro-Western fraternal organization for men who refuse to apologize for creating the modern world, a.k.a. Western chauvinists. Proud Boys members routinely attend rallies, protests, and other First Amendment-protected events where they sometimes engage in violence against individuals whom they perceive as threats to their values. The group has an initiation process for new members who often wear yellow and black polo shirts or other apparel adorned with the Proud Boy logos to events. And it's not just new members, right, who are wearing this. Uh, the paragraph <laughs> might make you think that, but uh, they oftentimes, they'll all uh, wear the, these uh, polo shirts um, and, you know, pose for group photos and, and whatnot. So this brief description really does a couple of things. It shows the basis of mutual association and provides the context under which the named individuals are to be charged. But it also makes it clear that the Proud Boys are a gang. The criminal justice system may not really know what to do with someone like Shane Jenkins. Um, well, actually, no, they know exactly to do, what to do with someone like Shane Jenkins. You know, he has a history of assaulting police, and he's charged with assaulting police yet again. 
right? So recidivist people who have a criminal history, um, you know, the criminal justice system is pretty good at dealing with that. Well, maybe not good at dealing with it, but we know how they deal with people uh, who fit that uh, demographic. And uh, again, that's what this paragraph is doing. It's laying the groundwork for the idea that these defendants and future defendants from this organization are going to receive special attention from the justice system, right? So if this is a gang and is engaged in a kind of violence, what do we do with them? So that's what they're doing. They're laying out the groundwork for establishing that these defendants uh, are participating in these activities as part of their membership in this gang. Now, as I said before, I'm a political scientist. I'm not an attorney. I don't know the first thing about how to draw up an indictment, subpoena a witness, or deliver a closing argument. But I do know this. If you're a criminal defendant charged with enacting in concert with other criminal defendants, you do not want this kind of paragraph in your indictment. There are a lot of different organizations and Department of Justice history that have this kind of treatment. And it doesn't tend to work out for well for people who have this kind of paragraph in their indictment. You get additional resources and attention from the FBI. Uh, there are groups that are specifically targeted at you, such as the National Gang Intelligence Center and the Violent Gang Task Forces. So how do I know that this fits this kind of pattern, right? Um, obviously, this isn't the first time there's been a gang that the FBI has investigated. So I'll give you another example of this kind of cut-and-paste text that the Department of Justice uses in its charging documents when dealing with members of a uh, violent uh, gang organization. So this one I'm going to look at is from the Gangster Disciples. And again, they cut and paste this text. Anytime they arrest a, a, a gangster disciple and they want to charge them, they cut and paste this and they put in the indictment. The Gangster Disciples is a violent gang which began in the Chicago, Illinois area in the 1970s. The leaders of two different Chicago-based gangs, the Black Disciples and the Supreme Gangsters, aligned their respective groups and created the Gangster Disciple. Once united, the Gangster Disciples re recruited heavily in Chicago, within Illinois jails and prisons, and throughout the United States. The Gangster Disciples are active in criminal activity in approximately 24 states. The Gangster Disciples employ a highly structured organization. Members are organized into geographic groups, each called a count or a deck. Members in good standing are considered to be on count or plugged in. A meeting of a particular count may be referred to as a round or a nine. During these meetings, dues may be collected, gang members and membership and business discussed, gang literature distributed, and criminal activity discussed and planned. The gangster disciples maintain a hierarchical structure on the belief that the enterprise will be ready to step in and run the United States should its government fail. Gangster disciples often use titles for positions within the gang. The term chairman is reserved for the national leader, LH, who is currently incarcerated, but who still communicates with gang leaders. Other than the chairman, gangster disciples, board members are the highest ranking members. Board members maintain regular contact 
with state and regional leaders, the governor of governors, governors, and assistant governors of the states where the gangster disciples are active, end quote. So this actually goes on for seven more paragraphs. These are added, right? As successful prosecutions are brought against these kinds of criminal organizations, as more facts about these criminal organizations are established in federal court, the descriptions of the criminal organizations in the charging documents get longer and longer. And so anyone with even a cursory understanding of the Proud Boys would understand that the description that you see in the charging documents against them in the Capitol insurrection um, is actually rather cursory compared to other examples of this. And again, you, you, I use the Gangster Disciples. You could use MS-13, La Cosa Nostra. Um, all these groups you know, have different paragraphs that are used. Proud Boys are just starting out with one rather short paragraph that actually, you know, is really kind of an, an inadequate description. And that some of that could just be a reflection of the, uh, the hurry that the Justice Department was in as they were moving uh, to, you know, convene grand juries and uh, issue, you know, begin proceedings, initiate proceedings against the various defendants. So uh, as more defendants are prosecuted, more language is, over time, going to appear describing uh, the Proud Boys and the scope of their criminal activity. So, yeah, the FBI in the last four years probably has been too focused to an, on Antifa and on actually using Proud Boys sources to get intelligence about Antifa. But do pay attention to this paragraph. The President of the United States uttered the name of the Proud Boys and appeared to give them orders on national television. Stand down and stand by. So, uh, sorry, it's actually stand back and stand by. And um, that was during a debate with Joe Biden and Chris Wallace asked the president, President Trump, to denounce far-right violence uh, among his supporters. And Trump asked who? And he said, well, uh, name somebody, you know, and he's, he named the problems. And that's when Trump uh, uttered the words that uh, were in the clip that I began the podcast with, right? So, uh, you know, you've got the name of this organization appearing in a federal conspiracy indictment with the full weight of the Justice Department. And this is an organization that the President of the United States, during a debate in September of 2020, appeared to be giving orders to. Um, and by the way, you know, pretty ominous, right? Stand down and stand by. Or stand back and stand by, excuse me. Um, and that's, you know, stand by. Stand by for what? Well, perhaps stand by for January 6th. Now, this may be the first time that some of the individual defendants have been alleged to have been engaged in a criminal conspiracy, but this isn't the first time that the FBI has prosecuted a criminal conspiracy. They're laying the groundwork for Proud Boys to catch federal gang charges anytime they catch charge in the future. And uh, this isn't the first time, you know, they've prosecuted a criminal organization. And I can say as a criminal organization because Proud Boys members have all been already been convicted of crimes of violence many times. All right, go a little bit into the history now of the Proud Boys. So when McGinnis founded the Proud Boys in 2016, he knew what he was doing. He was cutting and pasting from gang culture to create an internally cohesive organization for men who have a proclivity for political violence. 
The group itself is organized into functional subdivisions and local chapters. So there's a lot of titles to, to go around. You see this in other gangs as well. It's one of the things that if you're trying to give men who feel they are unimportant a sense that they have some unique world historical merit, just throw uniforms and titles at them. Uh, Rome did that uh, with the SA. But it's a weakness when it comes to the legal system because it means that they already fit in nicely with an already codified legal definition of a gang or a criminal enterprise. In fact, if you wanted to design a way to recruit right-wing extremists into an organization that would be subject to harsh legal penalties for violence, you couldn't do much better than what Gavin McGinnis did in 2016. And that realization may be part of the reason why McGinnis actually left the group in, in 2018. Now, if I could actually offer one suggestion to the AUSAs, uh, it would be to put the org chart uh, into the charging documents, because the org chart for the Proud Boys isn't terribly complicated. Uh, currently, you have the chairman at the very top, Enrique Tario, who uh, had been arrested a couple of days before the Capitol insurrection. Then below that, you have the elder chapter, which I you, you can think of as an executive committee, which includes um, Ethan Nordine, who is one of the named defendants in the federal conspiracy charges uh, alleged against the Proud Boys. Then below that, you have state chapters with state officers and apparently city chapters uh, with city officers. So, uh, you know, these are functional subdivisions, right? And geographic subdivisions. So, it's also alleged in the charging documents that the Proud Boys create a special chapter, the Ministry of Self-Defense, in charge of planning and preparation for the Capitol insurrection. Now, the Proud Boys themselves appear to have been aware of the danger that, you know, these activities could result in additional sentencing for them. The government has strong evidence that they will use to show that the Proud Boys Ministry of Self-Defense conspired to storm the Capitol on January 6th. Charles Donahue, who is the North Carolina State Chapter President, posted a message on the Proud Boys encrypted telegram channel that stated, quote, everything is compromised and we can be looking at gang charges. And he did that, you know, in the context of shutting down the prior encrypted channel uh, when Enrique Tario was arrested prior to the insurrection and establishing a new one uh, in order to, uh, you know, try to have some sort of secure communications with the brunts on the ground uh, in order to, you know, uh, try to continue to further their aims on January the 6th. But again, they were apparently cognizant of the fact that uh, their organization uh, could be uh, subject to additional gang enhancements as a result of their planning organizational activity. The conspiracy that's outlined in the charging documents, um, and again, these are all allegations, right? Um, but much of it is actually involves the attempt by the Proud Boys to disguise their identity as Proud Boys. Um, and so there's actually quite a bit of detail on how they normally dress when they attend uh, either peaceful rallies and demonstrations or events where they plan to perpetrate political violence. And so I'm calling this a Tea Party strategy, right? So everyone knows about the Boston Tea Party, the other Tea Parties that occurred in the context of the American Revolution, where various uh, patriot groups dressed up as Native Americans, right? And threw tea into the harbor in Boston and elsewhere. 
in a protest against the tax that was levied by the British Crown, well, Parliament. In any event, this Tea Party strategy is, is kind of what they're doing, right? So um, the government outlines its case where the Proud Boys are essentially claiming to be other than who they actually are. Um, now, the implementation of this was actually pretty weak. The vast majority of them didn't wear face coverings, even though the pandemic affords a really good pretext to wear masks. And um, some of their other communications, they, they think the coronavirus is a hoax. They, they've bought into that whole narrative. And so um, uh, you see Joe Biggs at various points. He actually does wear a mask covering the lower uh, part of his face. But I think that he assumed with his prominence in, in the group and the fact that he's leading all the activities, um, he knew he was going to be identified anyway. So, uh, you know, pulling it down, not such a, a big deal, perhaps, in his instance. Um, but... So they, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, this revolutionary spirit of 1776. They're, they're fond of invoking this, as are some of the other groups, such as the Oath Keepers and the Three Percenters. And so, you know, they came dressed as someone else. Um, they, and they pretended, uh, at least they, they said they were going to pretend to be Antifa. Now, that's one element of the, the conspiracy that gets a lot of attention in the, the various documents. And the basic plan is that they would dress in, quote, incognito mode, attack the Capitol, and other people in the crowd would join in the attack. And that part of the strategy I'm calling the monkey see, monkey do uh, part of it, which I don't think has received as much attention, perhaps, as it should. But still focusing on the, the Tea Party part of this, um, just at the moment, right? So they're dressed up as someone who they are not, and they're going to perpetrate these acts of political violence in storming the Capitol. Now, why did I choose this monkey see, monkey do as the, the title of, of the episode? Well, because it's important to realize that the Proud Boys were modeling the behavior they wanted to see the rest of the crowd emulate. Even though there were a lot of Proud Boys there, there simply wouldn't have been enough of them to actually accomplish their overall objective. What they needed was for others in the crowd to join in attacking the police and storming the Capitol. That's why it was important for them to arrive ahead of the main body of the mob, and why they weren't actually able to gain access to the Capitol until hundreds of other attackers arrived. They were a vanguard, and they modeled the behavior that they wanted the crowd to engage in. One person, who's unnamed in the Nordine indictment, appeared on Nordine's podcast and put it this way, quote, We, the Proud Boys, are looked at almost like the soldiers of the right wing. People are looking to us to lead the way. We gladly will step up and take our place where they want us. This stuff is real. We are in a war. So, um, Nordine, sorry, unnamed co-conspirator one, uh, who we'll, we'll talk about later on, uh, is basically saying that, you know, <laughs> okay, they see us as leaders. We're going to act as leaders. Um, and this was on a podcast that, you know, was in the sort of pre-planning stages uh, of the insurrection. Similarly, Felicia Connell, a woman who appears to have, uh, have been a member of the Proud Boys, uh, even though it's an all-male organization, and there's some controversy regarding this, uh, she produced on social media a challenge coin that appears to grant her membership, even though Proud Boys, almost by definition, right, proud of your boy, is, is an all-male fraternal organization, uh, nonetheless, at least for the purposes of this attack, they recruited Felicia 
and her brother uh, to act as effectively marshals, right, or sergeants at arms uh, in directing crowd and engaging in violence, allegedly. So she posted a Snapchat video that kind of explained the overall strategy. Quote, I never could have imagined having that much of an influence on the events that unfolded today. Dude, people were willing to follow. You effing lead, and everyone had my back, dude. Everyone. So they consciously, um, you know, part of their expectations was, and it's one that largely went unstated, was that the Proud Boys assumed if, if they started the attack on the Capitol, the members of the crowd would form a mob and have their back. I'm, I'm not sure if they've read up on social psychology of mob behavior or if this is just based on institutional learning, kind of learning that you get from years of political violence. But if the rest of the mob had simply hung back while they fought with the police, the Proud Boys fought with the police, it would have been over for them. Um, as it was, they wind up timing it rather perfectly. And we'll get into the timing in a moment. The Proud Boys are consistently getting reinforcements from the mob from about 1230 onward when the violence is at its peak. And here for a moment, uh, I will read directly from um, the federal conspiracy indictment. Um, and this is a quick quote about Enrique Tario and um, their plans for the day with regard to that sort of um, tea party strategy, right? Dressing up uh, as though there's someone else. December 29th, 2020, Tario posted a message on the social media site Parlor about the demonstration plan for January 6, 2021. Among other things, Tario announced that the Proud Boys would turn out in record numbers on January 6th, this time with a twist. Dot, dot, dot. We will not be wearing our traditional black and yellow. We will be incognito and we will be spread across downtown D.C. in smaller teams. And who knows? Dot, dot, dot. We might dress all in black, all caps, for the occasion, end quote. Um, and actually, I'm continuing on with the quote from the uh, indictment here. I believe the statement about dressing in all black is a reference to dressing like a group known as Antifa, who the Proud Boys have identified as an enemy of their movement and are often depicted in the media wearing all black to demonstrations. All right, so that's it from, from that bit of the indictment. So, um, again, the chairman, Enrique Tario, uh, is documented as saying, we're going to all wear black. And we'll get to moment why, in a moment why this is significant. Um, here, here's another quote uh, from um, uh, the documents, uh, you know, documenting this element of the plan. On December 29th, Biggs, that's Joe Biggs, posted the following on Parler. We will not be attending D.C. in colors. We will be blending in as one of you. You won't see us. You'll even think we are you. We are going to smell like you, move like you, and look like you. The only thing we'll do that's us is think like us. January 6th is going to be epic. End quote. And so... Uh, you have two of the leaders, one of whom was present on the day, the other one couldn't make it because he'd been picked up by the FBI a couple of days before, uh, saying, all right, everybody, don't wear black and yellow. We're just black, maybe, or we're something, but not black and yellow. From another indictment, none of the men pictured 
or wearing Proud Boys colors of black and yellow, but are instead dressed, quote, incognito. Indeed, Biggs, wearing glasses and a dark knit hat, is dressed in a blue and gray plaid shirt. All right, so one last quote from the charging, charging documents uh, talking about how they're dressing as Antifa. And this is from the Ethan Nordine indictment. Again, Joe Biggs and Ethan Nordine were sort of the main field commanders uh, from the Ministry of Self-Defense, which was the overall chapter uh, of Proud Boys put in charge of their planning, preparation, execution of what the group would do on January 6th, allegedly. And this is from um, an individual A, right, uh, who I, it's not clear may not be the same person as unnamed co-conspirator one. Quote, they're freaking out about us not wearing colors in D.C., referring to the Proud Boys' stated plan of going incognito on January 6, 2021, rather than wearing their traditional black and yellow. In response, Nordine stated, Oh, I'm excited to play into that, and we've all got our disguises. We've got so many fun ideas. I really don't know what we're going to end up doing as far as we're going to look like, who, what we're going to look like, or how we're going to organize, but it's going to be fun. So I know I've spent a bit of time on the style choices of the Proud Boys, uh, all of which are usually unfortunate, but this is actually a substantial part of the conspiracies charge, and um, it might actually even be a weak element in the government's case. The various Proud Boys charged in the conspiracy all made it clear in their communications that no one was supposed to wear black and yellow. And they show up dressed in a variety of other, other outfits, but no black and yellow, no yellow and black. So I don't know if the defense will be able to claim that this is just a fashion choice, right? That you can't read too much into it. But the government's going to present evidence showing that the Proud Boys did show up, indeed, and many of them, uh, the named individuals, are showing up to many other events dressed in the official Proud Boy colors. So they're saying that this shows a conspiracy, right? Every other time they show up to attack people or even just to march, uh, they're wearing their uh, signature polo shirts and they've got yellow and black colors on. And this one time, they're still all together. They're still the same individuals. And they're still engaged in the same kind of activities that they have done at other demonstrations and protests uh, and violent street fights together. But this time, they're not wearing the gang colors. And again, in the context of those statements coming from the chairman um, and Biggs and Ordine, boom, there you go. That's the element of the conspiracy. So they've directed them to do something, and uh, the, the, all the ordinary members go ahead and they do it. Now, there's another noteworthy fashion choice that uh, seems to have slipped the attention of the government a, a little bit in the charging documents, although they mentioned it briefly. Uh, it's the prevalence of orange in their wardrobes. So, uh, you know, Nordine says, well, we're not quite sure what we're going to do. Uh, there's no record of this, but at some point, someone must have hit on orange as an alternative to the yellow and black. So many of them are wearing orange knit caps. Uh, if you look at the photos, and on January 6th, many members used pieces of orange tape to identify one another. One of the Kansas City Proud Boys, Christopher Kuhn, was photographed with what appears to be two rolls of orange duct tape attached to the rear of his backpack. Now, in the charging documents, the government says that the reason for the tape is unknown, but 
it's basically the same reason why gangs and armies wear uniforms in the first place, right? It's useful for them to identify one another, especially because these are individuals from many different parts of the country who may not have actually ever met each other in person before. So they don't wear yellow and black. They wear black and orange. And it could be another element to throw into the conspiracy. Um, but again, the government's case appears to rest on this idea that not wearing yellow and black is somehow going to demonstrate um, th this conspiracy. Um, th the conspiracy has a lot of other elements as well, right? So, um, you know, if they're able to show that this is what they usually do, and they were directed to change that, and then they did that, then they may, might be able to, to uh, prove that in court. All right, 12.15. So we're on January 6th. Now, what was happening at 12.15 is that Biggs and the Proud Boys reach the 2nd Street and Constitution Avenue Northwest intersection. Um, that's right across from the Capitol. That's just in the Northwest of the U.S. Capitol. And they arrive at the Capitol itself shortly before 1 p.m. Part of why this is important is this is all still happening while Trump's speech at the Ellipse is going on. So according to Brian Ott, a professor of communications at Texas Tech, in 2016, the average Trump speech lasted about 59 minutes. But they get longer. And so by 2020, the average Trump speech was 80 minutes long. Uh, interestingly, the reason why this, this extra time gets tacked on is because Trump has a lot of enemies and increasing number of enemies as his, um, as his administration goes on. As his term goes on, he's getting more enemies, and he has to attack them. And so he has more enemies, and that explains the, the difference in the length of time. And by January 6th, he's got a lot of enemies, right? So uh, the Proud Boys know that it's going to be a while before the mob, um, well, before the crowd at the demonstration turns into a mob at the Capitol. So the distance from the ellipse to the intersection uh, just to the northwest of the Capitol is about 1.3 miles. And Google Maps says it should take about 28 minutes uh, walking. Now, in order to reach 2nd Street and Constitution Avenue Northwest, um, you know, they have to leave uh, shortly before Trump actually says anything, right? So he goes on at 1 p.m. Now, uh, some people in the crowd may not have known that Trump was going to ask demonstrators to march on the Capitol, but the Proud Boys certainly would have known this because the organizers of the day's events have made it on, known on various websites, such as wildprotest.com. So um, certainly everyone who knew they were going to storm the Capitol. In fact, one point on video, one of the Proud Boys members, uh, someone whose nickname is Milkshake, yeah, part of this gang's thing is that they, they give each other these uh, nicknames like Spaz and Milkshake and Rufio. Um, and says, we're going to storm the Capitol! And at which point, Ethan Nordine, you know, takes up his megaphone and says, no, don't do that, you're, you're a moron. And probably not the only person there who, who was a moron, right? <laughs> Someone says, you know, you're not supposed to say that, but, um, you know, declares their intention to storm the Capitol. And, you know, that's what they're doing. So they know that they're going to storm the Capitol on the way from the Ellipse to the Capitol. At 1228, the Federal Protective Service officer reported that thousands of demonstrators have broken off from the ellipse and are now marching to the Capitol. So the Proud Boys certainly wanted to be at the Capitol well in advance of the crowd itself. 
Now, this fits in with the timeline of Trump's speech. At about 18 minutes in, uh, Trump starts talking about what they're going to do next. So, see if I can play the clip. Republicans are... Republicans are constantly fighting like a boxer with his hands tied behind his back. It's like a boxer. And we want to be so nice. We want to be so respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. And Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he doesn't, that will be a a sad day for our country. Because you're sworn to uphold our Constitution. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down, and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. So we see here, right, he's telling them what to do. You have to be like a boxer. Most of the time, Republicans are like a boxer with their hands tied behind their backs. Well, we don't want to be like that this time. We have to show strength and we have to be strong. And he's going to be right there with them, right? A key element of the promise is that Trump is going to lead them like a general uh, into uh, the Capitol and its environment. So at 1253, they've already out overwhelmed the outer perimeter west of the Capitol. And at 103, lead elements of the mob have reached the base of the Capitol steps. Now, Trump's speech ends at approximately 1.13 p.m. And at 1.30, Capitol police are overwhelmed and in retreat up the steps of the Capitol. At the same time, the main body of protesters has only begun to march from the ellipse to the Capitol. So it's not until 1.50 that Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund declares the event a riot, and D.C. Metropolitan Police Incident Commander Robert Glover follows suit about a minute later. At 1.58, Capitol Police on the east side of the Capitol remove barricades in front of the mob. So, um, you know, the, the mob is, is basically flowing around the building, and in the charging documents you see that they talk about the Proud Boys breaking them up into, into groups, breaking themselves up into groups, and so there's two sides of the Capitol, right? Uh, the long axis is oriented on a north-south axis, and uh, there's a mob fighting in the, the, the west side, and there's a mob fighting on the east side. Uh, mostly hand-to-hand combat is occurring. On the west, uh, the officers, uh, the Capitol Police, for some reason, offer very little resistance in the east, and they move barricades, which is the topic of a federal investigation. So... Um, at different times, uh, Ethan Nordine and uh, Joe Biggs are moving back and forth, right? So uh, they're directing and assessing the situation 
um, at both sides uh, of the Capitol. So uh, there's two separate conspiracy indictments uh, and a couple of ancillary ones, right? The smaller conspiracies that only involve a couple of people. Um, but and there's there's another one that that covers the Oath Keepers. But you know, again, because there's evident direction that's occurring uh, in these different groups that are fighting, that's one of the reasons why you have uh, these different indictments. So 213, Dominic Pizzola, a spaz, um, breaks a window in the Capitol with a riot shield. And at 210, the last barricades on the west end of the Capitol are overcome, and a mob is seeking to gain access on the west side of the building. At 211, um, the vast majority of the crowd is just only caught up to where the Proud Boys were uh, at uh, an hour, uh, or at, even at 12.15. So most officers are deployed on the west side of the Capitol at this point, and although insurrectionists arrive at the east side slightly later, because they don't have to fight, they actually breach the building first. And so now this leaves uh, the officers on the west side in a tenuous position, because as they're fighting, um, they have the crowd in the West, and they also have the crowd, the mob, uh, approaching inside the building um, from the East. So they're in control, effectively, of the Capitol from roughly this point up until sometime around 5.40 p.m. when the building is declared cleared. And at 6.14, D.C. National Guardsmen reestablish a perimeter on the West side of the Capitol. Now I'd like to move on to the conspiracy charges. Uh, the most important of these is the one uh, against the indictment against Ethan Nordeen, Joe Biggs, Zach Real, and Charles Donahoe. These four men are alleged to have been charged of the overall assault on the Capitol and are identified as members of the Proud Boys Elders chapter by the government. It's significant to recognize that this is not exhaustive. According to the indictment, the conspiracy included, quote, Others known and unknown, so it's possible that others will be charged for the conspiracy detailed in the indictment. And here I'll be reading directly from the indictment, which lists what is alleged that these individuals did. Nordeen, Biggs, Real, and Donahoe, with others known and unknown, carried out the conspiracy through the following manner and means. A. Encouraging members of the Proud Boys and others to attend the Stop the Steel protest in Washington, D.C., on January 6, 2021. B. Using websites, social media, and other electronic communications to raise funds to support travel and per equipment purchases for the visit. C. Obtaining paramilitary gear and supplies, including concealed tactical vests, protective equipment, and radio equipment for the January 6th attack. D. Scheming to evade detection by law enforcement by dressing incognito rather than wearing Proud Boys colors that had been pro prominently displayed at previous events. E. Traveling to Washington, D.C. prior to the January 6th attack. F. Engaging in meetings and encrypted communications in Washington, D.C. on the days leading up to the Janu January 6th and on the morning of January 6th to engage in planning for the January 6th attack. G. Using programmable handheld radios, encrypted messaging applications, and other communications equipment to communicate and coordinate the January 6th attack. H. Dismantling metal barricades that had been deployed to protect law enforcement and occupants of the Capitol. I. Storming past barricades, Capitol Police, and other law enforcement officers, 
in efforts to disrupt the proceedings at the Capitol. And Jay obtaining entry into the Capitol as a result of damage to windows and doors that otherwise would have precluded entry. So the co-conspirators are alleged to have used an encrypted channel consisting of the co-conspirators themselves, uh, unnamed co-conspirator one, and a, quote, handful of additional members. So the reason why they did this was in the wake of Enrique Tarrio's arrest, they uh, had to invent a new or create a new encrypted channel, which they call the new MOSD for New Ministry of Self-Defense. So this channel is just for the Executive Committee of Planners. On January 5th, they create another encrypted channel called Boots on the Ground, which, according to the government, had about 60 members, to include the members of the new MSOD channel and uh, a lot of other individuals. So a lot of the information about this comes from a person named UCC1, Unindicted Co-Conspirator 1 in the documents, who presumably is the person who gave the government the key to access the encrypted messages. The government's case begins on social media, uh, presumably parlor, which is sometimes mentioned. Sometimes in the, in the documents they just say, somebody posted this on social media without identifying the platform. On November 5th, Joe Biggs posts, quote, it's time for effing war if they steal this shit. The process whereby they arrive at the decision to storm the Capitol is fairly similar to what we saw in Shane Jenkins' Twitter account. On December 23rd, Zach Reel writes a post describing January 6, 2021 as, quote, the day where Congress gets to argue the legitimacy of the Electoral College votes. And yes, there will be a big rally on that day, end quote. This is, of course, in the context of Trump's tweet at 1.43 a.m. on December 19th, wherein Trump tweeted that there would be a big protest on January 6th and be there. It will be wild. Worth mentioning, by the way, that um, their interpretation of the Constitution is is wrong, right? Uh, <laughs> Congress doesn't really get to argue uh, the legitimacy of the Electoral College votes. Uh, it's mostly pro forma. This is mostly a ceremonial. Congress does not typically contest the electoral process that results in their own election, right? Um, but, you know, the sort of these dead-enders um, in the, this Trumpist movement have decided that Congress now has that power. In fact, uh, you know, Mike Pence has that power. So, on December 27th, Ethan Nordine posts a link to a crowdsourcing funding campaign to fund, quote, protective year in communications to be used in the insurrection. Now, on December 30th, Zach Reel posts a link on social media to a fundraiser for travel expenses for the Proud Boys that raises over $5,500 between December 30th and January 4th. Now, at least according to what I've read, it doesn't seem as though the government has access to the old uh, MSOD, Ministry of Self-Defense channel, but it's likely that this was being used sometime, you know, from November uh, all the way up to January 4th, when the new MOSD channel is created in response to the arrest of Enrique Terrio. Again, these are on um, Telegram, right? So these are Telegram channels, uh, the, the app that are basically used by this planning organization, this executive committee of the Ministry of Self-Defense uh, to plan operations in advance of the January 6th attack. Now, it's hard to tell if UCC-1 is actually co cooperating with the government 
before his arrest. Although there are comments made by him in the charging documents that make him seem very eager to take part, he nonetheless says things that, in hindsight, make it seem as though he's already cooperating by establishing facts that might not otherwise be available to the investigation. On January 4th, for example, he writes on the new MOSD channel, quote, We had originally planned on breaking the guys into teams. Let's start divvying them up and getting Baofeng channels picked out. So this may have been something that was already uh, discussed on the old MOSD channel, um, but hadn't been discussed. It was already you know, taken as read uh, on the new channel and until uh, UCC1 winds up putting it into the record. Just you know, speculation on my part. Could just be that he's sincerely just reminding people, by the way, we need to split the guys up into teams, uh, which again, we see them doing, right? Uh, different teams of Proud Boys attacked from the West and the East. On January 6th, UCC1 sends out the following message on the Boots on the Ground channel. Stand by for the shared Baofeng channel and ch shared Zello channel to be decentralized, be decentralized and used, use good judgment until future orders. And also, quote, Rufio, that's Nordine, is in charge. Cops are the primary threat. Don't get caught by them or BLM. Don't get drunk until off the street. So, um, yeah, it may be the reason that the reason why the charging documents rely so heavily on UCC1 is that he can testify to all this if the case goes to trial. But he certainly does an excellent job of detailing exactly what the conspirators are going to do on January 6th. And it's also somewhat significant that Biggs indicated at 9.17 a.m. on January 6th on the Boots on the Ground channel that he had spoken with Terrio, who's not named in the conspiracy. Um, he's in custody at this point, I believe. Uh, Biggs has indicated that he did give Terrio the plan, so it could be that Enrique Terrio, uh, or Henry Terrio, uh, is one of the unnamed individuals who might be eventually included in the conspiracy charge. Now, during the insurrection itself, Ethan Nordine and Joe Biggs appear to have been in overall command, and they may have been careful not to commit acts of violence themselves. In fact, in the individual charges against them, that there is nothing alleging that they commit acts of violence. They actually appear to have done a better job maintaining command and control on the 6th than the Capitol Police themselves. Uh, at one point, Capitol Police Deputy Chief Eric Wadlow, uh, sorry, Waldo, uh, actually left his post in the command center to physically fight the mob. Uh, I'll be covering some of the problems that law enforcement had on that day in later episodes. Right. But um, that's that's not something you should do. OK, his job as the incident commander is to be at his post. Right. And to maintain command and control. And one of the complaints that we saw from the Capitol Police is that they were rudderless um, versus the Proud Boys who had uh, Nordine and Biggs uh, going around from the east to the west uh, to assess and to, uh, you know, update plans and information as the attack is commencing. So at this point, today, dozens of Proud Boys have been arrested, and many of them have been alleged to have been the most violent people at the Capitol. It's a really high watermark for the alt-right. They led the way, and the normies took their lead, right? They've been planning and preparing this for this since 2016, if not for this specific act, but for something big. And Trump certainly summed the mob to the Capitol, but it was the Proud Boys, more than any other group, operationalized a plan to take the Capitol 
Although, as we'll see, there actually is some communication uh, between these multiple groups. Uh, one of the defendants actually does claim that there is a uh, there's communication between um, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, uh, and the Three Percenters, um, and so some other various uh, MAGA types. Um, and if they wanted to, uh, they do mention that there's a, a Zillow, Zillow, <laughs> Zillow channel um, that would have given them the the means to do that uh, in a secure way. So as of today. Virtually the entire leadership of the Proud Boys is in federal custody. And they've been less likely to be offered bail than many of the other defendants, right? Part because they've been uh, more violent than some of the people who, you know. The evidence does suggest that there were some people that day who kind of wandered past the barricades and uh, didn't actually attack anyone or, or break anything. Um, but that's not the case uh, in the, for most of the Proud Boys except perhaps for uh, Nordine and Biggs, who nonetheless are still looking at serious time because even though they didn't engage in violence themselves, they are alleged to have, in fact, provided um, the leadership that the other people uh, who are actually taking part in the attack uh, needed. And so it's also unclear at this point what Gavin McInnes' ongoing relationship with the Proud Boys is today. Although he claims to have left the group, He's made public statements that are still very much in agreement with their overall agenda of political violence. It's striking that he's still a free man. This is a foreign national who founded a gang that four years later storms the capital. Uh, if he was Pakistani rather than Canadian, uh, you know, would they still be at liberty? Right? It's an open question. I mean, to what extent is the Department of Justice looking at McGinnis for his role in creating a Proud Boys? if not his role, perhaps, on January 6th. Uh, there actually was some speculation that McGinnis was there at one point. It happens that one of the uh, defendants, a proud boy from the Kansas City chapter, uh, William Cressman, looks a lot like him. And so a lot of people tagged him on Twitter and like, this is McGinnis. No, it's not, actually. But the, the resemblance, even down to the way they style their beards, uh, is, is very similar. So, uh, but again, just a question. What's Gavin McGinnis doing today? He's a very tech-savvy guy. This is a group that regularly uses encrypted communications. So if he wanted to communicate privately with the Proud Boys, he probably has a means to do so. But there's nothing indicating anything of the sort in any of the charging documents. So, nonetheless, we're in this peculiar situation where we've, we have this allied country, Canada, that's declared this organization a terrorist organization, and the founder of the organization resides in the United States, but yet has not been charged with any offense. So if you found a terrorist organization and then renounce it two years later, and then it commits a terrorist act, do you get to go away scot-free? Now, particularly if, if you, don't, you haven't renounced it publicly, right? I mean, McGinnis has been kind of cagey. On the one hand, um, he says he's left the group and you know has no... Uh, forget the word to, word to use, but no further connection with, in any capacity, uh, with the Proud Boys. On the other hand, um, he hasn't, you know, denounced the, the monster that he's created. It's also becoming clear that the Proud Boys themselves had involvement with the FBI over the last several years. The Department of Justice has acknowledged that Enrique Terrio, uh, the chairman of the Proud Boys, had worked as an FBI informant long before he joined the Proud Boys although there's nothing to suggest 
that he had been working with them on an ongoing basis at the time of January 6th. Other than the fact that, you know, looked at from one point of view, perhaps a January 4th arrest could have been a just, it's, it's a real coincidence, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the FBI has Terry O in custody. The government does, rather. And um, yet, you know, from the 4th through the 6th, they apparently didn't learn anything really concerning the group's plans for the January 6th, despite the fact that they had access to Terry's devices. The main effect just seems to be that they, the Proud Boys switched from one channel uh, to another. So similarly, the Proud Boys claim to have passed along information to the FBI. Joe Biggs has claimed that he has had multiple contacts with the FBI. Um, and, you know, they some of them have claimed that they're the FBI was looking for information on Antifa and that, you know, Proud Boys were there uh, to supply it for them. And then there's un, uh, unindicted cooperating witness one, a UCC one who had access to the encrypted new MOSD channel and who's certainly appearing to testify against the central figures in the conspiracy cases. Now, his testimony has already proven critical. Initially, Biggs and Nordine were granted bail. These guys organized the attack on the Capitol, but they were granted bail because none of the evidence presented against them showed that they'd personally attacked anyone or destroyed any property. And so it took a new conspiracy indictment with evidence from UCC-1 that gave more evidence involving the command roles played by Biggs and Nordine on January 6th for the government to be able to actually secure these indictments uh, to, to, to secure the defendants in pretrial detention. So... A UCC-1, whoever he may be, has already provided critical evidence. Now, it's not new for subjects of FBI investigations to try to use information as leverage to get the government to look the other way, or to try to get them a, a good plea agreement in exchange for cooperation, if it should come to that. Look at Whitey Bulger, right? Whitey Bulger served as an FBI informant for years and gave the government information on competing criminal enterprises while he was running his own criminal enterprise. Of course, we all know what happened to Whitey Bulger. Uh, he wound up dead at USP Hazleton. And the one thing that, you know, we should know now about the Proud Boys is that there's an incentive for members uh, to flip and to try to get a better deal. Um, Dominic Spaz Peloza, the Proud Boy who's alleged to have broken the Capitol into the Capitol with a riot shield, you know, rather iconically, I mean, alleged, right? But there's pictures of him doing it. Uh, is one defendant who might be considering uh, flipping. So, I mean, he has a history with the Proud Boys uh, that's such that at different points they've denied that he's a member. Uh, apparently, he's had some falling outs with them. Nonetheless, you know, but it counted, right? He was there on the 6th. But <clears throat> his attorney has publicly floated the idea that Spaz uh, might be looking uh, to accept the plea. So... Uh, so far, it, as of today, none of the Proud Boys have yet to accept a plea, um, but that's you know, roughly where we are moving forward in the cases some of them may, we may want to, assuming that these things are on, on the table, which presumably they are, right? Some, you know, 95% of federal cases uh, don't go to court. Um, you know, if you actually had a jury trial in all these cases, the, the the administrative, the judicial apparatus actually couldn't handle it. So uh, they're probably, some of these defendants, uh, you know, are going, they're not going to look for their day in court. They're going to try to get the best deal they can 
um, simply because we, you know, we can't try them all. So the Proud Boys are faced with at least one cooperating witness who had access to the information that had been com carefully compartmentalized. And there's a possibility that other defendants might turn state's evidence, assuming that's something that, again, that the government wants to put on the table. So for all the bluster and the various tough guy street fighting posturing and the actual street fighting, there's one betrayal that appears to have stung them the most, and that's the betrayal of Donald Trump. Donald Trump promised the crowd that gathered at the Ellipse that he would march with them to the Capitol, but he did no such thing. Instead, he retreated to the White House, where he did what he does best, watching TV and tweeting. So, on Trump's very last day in office, with no pardons for the insurrectionists, Ethan Nordine decided that he was going to lash out at Trump. Quote, We are now, and have always been on our own, so glad he was able to pardon a bunch of degenerates as his last move, and shit on us on the way out. And apparently there are lots of other swears. F you, Trump, you left us on the battlefield bloody and alone. So what Trump was supposed to do, as revealed in, in some of these discussions, is that Trump was supposed to invoke the Insurrection Act and use that as a pretext somehow to remain in office. And there's no record of any communication at this point between any of the insurrectionists and the Trump administration itself, although one has to assume that the FBI is looking into that. Nonetheless, there's communication between the insurrectionists saying that's what's going to happen. Trump is going to use the Insurrection Act to stay in office. I have to point out, this would be entirely unconstitutional. Right? That's not something that can happen uh, under our system of the rule of law. Now, we don't actually know what Trump was doing for most of the time when insurrectionists occupied the Capitol, but he certainly wasn't physically there. Trump has Secret Service protection, and it could be they simply wouldn't allow him to go. Uh, if that's true, and that's just speculation on my part, but whoever it was, whether it be the Secret Service or uh, some of his advisors, whoever it was who managed to keep Trump from attending the occupation of the Capitol really rescued him from his worst instincts. I mean, if he'd done any of that, any semblance of plausible deniability would have been utterly lost. And that may be the reason why he ultimately decided to watch the events unfold on television and send a series of mean tweets uh, talking about Mike Pence and members of Congress. So, Proud Boys, they weren't the only shock troops alleged to have taken part in the Capitol insurrection. Kelly Meggs of the Oath Keepers claimed on Facebook that there was a coalition in place and that they were communicating with one another. Uh, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, and Florida Three Percenters uh, were the sort of coalition that Meggs claimed credit uh, for creating. So even if the aftermath of the storming of the Capitol means that the Proud Boys themselves dissolve as an organization, there's no shortage of extant right-wing extremist groups, and new groups could crop up. With its new and more inclusive definition of a Western chauvinism and the use of the Internet as a tool for recruitment and organizing, the Proud Boys might serve as a template for the next generation of the far-right extremist groups, assuming that it itself doesn't rise from the ashes uh, from these ongoing series of prosecutions. So the Proud Boys were able to carry out their activities over the course of the last four years in a context in which law enforcement appeared to be actively disinterested in them. 
Sadly, though, law enforcement only seems to really pay attention to these groups after they take their violence to great extremes, as the Proud Boys and other Trumpists did on January 6th. Our country has been engaged in a long war against far-right domestic terrorism, and it began with an attack on the FBI itself, with the Murrah Building bombing on April 19, 1995, in Oklahoma City. Since the 1990s, we've seen the Patriot Movement, the Militia Movement, the Sovereign Citizen Movement, the Freeman, Aryan Nations, Aryan Brotherhood, the Base, Christian Identity, the Incel Movement, Atomwaffen Division, Identity Europa, Stormfront, and of course, the Oath Keepers, the Three Percenters, and the Proud Boys all crop up. And law enforcement oftentimes, you know, I understand they can't do pro proactive policing, right? But you compare what has happened with these groups versus what happened with things like COINTELPRO, uh, the contrast is, you know, rather stark, right? Just as we saw during the protests last summer when National Guard was out in force versus, you know, when they know these violent extremists are coming to the Capitol uh, and they had just, just a day shift and no right gear, no supplies, no backup, nothing on hand. So we've had all these organized groups and we've also had all other people, right? So the lone wolves who sometimes may be inspired by these groups, but, you know, people such as Eric Robert Rudolph, uh, the, the abortion clinic bomber, the Atlantic, Atlanta bomber, uh, people like, you know, the massacre in uh, South Carolina done by Dylan Roof, Robert Bowers, right, who attacked the Tree of Life Synagogue, uh, murdering people in Pittsburgh, and all the various incel disciples of Elliot Rogers who are, have been attacking women for, for uh, quite some time now. So despite the fact that this era of far-right political violence began with an attack on a federal building targeting the FBI itself, law enforcement has been far less aggressive toward right-wing political extremists than they are toward, let's say, war protesters or civil rights protesters or generally anyone on the left. Every time it happens, it's as though it never happened before. Um, and even when people in law enforcement try to do something, they get pushback. So in 2009, we saw the Department of Homeland Security issue a report warning of the dangers of terrorism from the right to include radicalized veterans, radicalized combat veterans. At the time, Republicans condemned it. They claimed it was an attack on veterans. To many people, the continued prevalence of far-right political violence is a clear vindication of the findings of that report. And the author of that report, Daryl Johnson, has become something of a Cassandra, doomed to issue warnings that are never heeded. In the wake of the Capitol insurrection, Johnson said this in an interview with NBC News. Quote, according to them, they want a civil war. So that would be a final chapter. Having a bunch of massive terrorist attacks and chaos in the streets and political leaders being assassinated. That's the kind of phase we're moving into right now. End quote. And yet, if there's one thing that this country is good at doing, it's fighting the last war. In the last five years, the Proud Boys have done everything they could to make themselves the most conspicuously violent extremist organization in America. Much like the bombing of the Murrah Building in 1995 forced the FBI to pay greater attention to the militia movement, the role of the Proud Boys in the Capitol insurrection was such that even the most sonambulant law enforcement agencies in the government will have to be alert to the danger that they 
and other like-minded groups pose. It's estimated that they may make as many as 500 arrests in the Capitol insurrection, but I think that that may be an undercount. At least 800 people entered the building, and significant resources are being dedicated to identifying them. There may also be people who fought with the police outside who didn't enter the Capitol, and these people are identifiable from video and cell phone records as well. There are some 60 people on the MOSD channel that the Proud Boys used to organize the insurrection, and all of these will probably be getting a knock on the door as well. It may be that there were some who were smart enough to have covered their faces and not brought cellular devices, but these suspects still have to contend with tipsters, informants, and ordinary police work. And so with regard to the Proud Boys, the FBI is probably going to be like, Ash, catch them, right? They got to catch them all. So that's the Proud Boys. Summing up, they're they're an all-male drinking club, strangely obsessed with made-up rules about masturbation, punching each other while reciting the names of cereals, black and uh, yellow polo shirts, cheeky tortures, and destroying government in the service of the creation of a fascist ethnostate. All this is done in the guise of supporting Western values. They seem to be rather confused about what those values actually are. In political modernity, they're talking about creating the modern world. These are liberal values. And they would have us return to the Habesian state of nature rather than accept the result of a free and fair democratic election. Whatever ideas they might have, they've taken wholly from Gavin McGinnis. He might himself be a little bit clever, but he himself has left the organization. So his own commitment to the entire project may have been nothing more than some sort of ironic hipster pose. McGinnis manages to create something dangerous and absurd at the same time. So now, and in the future perhaps, his followers are languishing in federal prison. Gavin McGinnis gets to enjoy his freedom in his 4,694-square-foot house at 88 Park Avenue in Larchmont, New York. He got into Williamsburg real estate at the right time, sold, and also had his business uh, with Vice Media. And so he's a high-net-worth individual. So he's got a five-bedroom, five-bath home that he bought for $2,684,000 in 2016. That's currently valued at $3,000,000. $177,026, according to Zillow. And according to press reports, his neighbors hate him. But you can look it up. It's it's a nice place. And it's kind of a contrast where he gets to live compared to where his followers get to live. So if they're convicted or if they accept a plea, the Proud Boys who followed McGinnis will get to serve their long facilities, their long sentences in facilities such as FCC Beaumont, USP Lee, USP Canaan, FCC Butner, USP Coleman, or FCI Raybrook, depending upon where they're from, right? So they'll get a choice, they'll get assigned uh, different places, they'll probably try to keep them close to their families, but they're different places. You know, they certainly have Texas well covered, New York well covered, North Carolina um, well covered. So, you know, Florida, certainly they can send them to Coleman. Lots of places they can go. But wherever they go, they're going to get to enjoy a 70-square-foot cell. If they're lucky, they'll get a decent job in prison, and they'll be able to buy nice stuff at the commissary. They save up their money. They can buy a hand-crank radio. And in their free time, they can try placing collect calls to their relatives. 
who may not accept the charges from the overpriced contractors who run the phone systems at federal prisons. They can make friends with the various white supremacist prison gangs, such as the Aryan Brotherhood and the Dirty White Boys. They can learn how to make hooch and enjoy exciting new drugs, such as K2. So the Proud Boys may be the most effective far-right political group in America today, but what they believe is so risibly idiotic that they deserve absolutely no compassion for the circumstances in which they put themselves. I want to be absolutely unequivocal on this. You did not create the modern world, right? Proud Boys did not create the modern world. The members of the Proud Boys have told themselves a story that's flattering to their own vanity. They claim to have created the modern world. But of course they didn't. They were born into modernity, just like the rest of us, and have no more claim to having created it than they do to having created nuclear physics, the art of Leonardo, Shakespeare's plays, or Plato's Republic. Simply living in Western modernity does not make you special. No one is asking them to apologize for creating the modern world because they didn't create it. They not only didn't create the modern world, they don't even know enough about history to understand why that claim is ridiculous. I hope they take advantage of the time that they find themselves now in state custody to uh, maybe read a book or two, right? So culture and scientists, science, these are iterative processes. Proud Boys claim to support Western civilization, but they're actually an uncivilized, barbarian enemy of civilization itself. Everything that is good and ennobling about the Western philosophical tradition are things that are, they actually oppose. The equality of people, equal human dignity, freedom of conscience and expression, electoral democracy, and any notion of human progress are values that the Proud Boys would tear down in an instant. Their vision of the future is what Orwell described when he conjured up the image of a boot stamping on a human face forever. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed this week's show on the Proud Boys, the main group that formed the vanguard of the Capitol insurrection. I'd like to thank you very much for listening. Please rate and subscribe if you haven't already.